Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. From the top. Ready? Yeah. This is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, the miniseries on Radio Lab. Jada Boomrod here with Shima. All right, one, one name, good. <laughs> this is the final episode of the series. We told you stories about Harry Pace, Black Swan Records, Ethel Waters, Roland Hayes. We're gonna end the series with the story of a song. One record to rule them all. Can you share your name and titles? My name is Imani Perry. I am the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. This story came to us from Imani Perry. You've heard her throughout the series. Oh, so sweet. Race is not something that is, it's something that happens. It's- I don't know what Kiyosi is talking about. This looks like a black man to me. I don't know what he's talking about. Her perspective and work has been a real guide for us. And this story uh, comes or well, begins one of her books, May We Forever Stand. You shared at the start of your book that your son... Mm-hmm learned the song mm-hmm. and you were surprised. Can you describe sure. your discovery of him learning the song? My son was five years old when he came home singing the song, yeah. She says she came into his room one day, he was sitting on the floor playing with his toys. And he was humming it. I was like, where did you learn that? And he said, at school. And I said, do you know what it is? And he said, it's the Black National Anthem. And I was surprised because, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't anticipate that, you know, he had a great music teacher. I didn't anticipate that they would be teaching the song. Was and his school predominantly black or white or was it? It was predominantly white. It's just, yeah. you know, kind of progressive, liberal, private school. But I also knew that he didn't, um, he couldn't possibly have understood the full gravitas of the song. I guess know. in a way, this is probably Black Swan's biggest claim on the historical record. Journalist and author Paul Slade. June 1923. Released on Black Swan by a band called the Manhattan Harmony 4. Actually, on the label, it says Negro National Anthem or National Negro Anthem. That is the version that's now actually held in the National Recording Registry. So clearly very significant. But your son didn't really know what it was at that point. No. But then on Thanksgiving holiday, something happened. So when we went home to Alabama for Thanksgiving, you know, we all come to my grandmother's home. We're all sitting in the den. And I should say my family is very large. My (laughs) mother is one of 12. All of her siblings have children. We came of age sleeping many people to a bed. It's a three-bedroom house. It's not a big house. So the room is so full. There's It's sort of like a standing room only, (laughs) right? And we gather in the den, which is like the TV room. And this is commonplace in Black Southern culture. You need to ask kids to stand up and perform. Do I have to? And so I said, why don't you stand up and, and sing the song? Okay. So he stood up and he... Lift every voice and sing. Began to sing. earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Then are we rising, rise high as the listening skies. 
Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. And um, immediately, my aunts and uncles and my mother, everybody stands up and starts to sing with him. I think it was my Aunt Thelma who was the first one to raise her fist. And then everybody in my family raised their right fist. And his eyes grow, you know, big like saucers. And I moved. It was this sort of moment when he could feel what it meant to say that that song was was the Black National Anthem. Imani says she looked around the room. My grandmother had recently passed, and I thought her presence is still around. So in some ways, we had four generations of Black adults singing it together. And that is kind of strange. In that living room, Imani wondered, how is this song speaking so strongly across four generations? And will it continue? I mean, and that's why I had to, to write Maybe Forever Stand. You know, it's like this, this is something that everybody deserves to know. So Imani wrote a book, and one of the first things she discovered is that the power of the song throughout time, you can see the seeds of that in the song's creation story. That story starts with a guy named James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson we to America. was born How would you have us? a couple of years after the Civil War. As we are, or sinking neath the load we bear. This is a recording of him reading a poem. Our eyes fixed forward on a star, or gazing empty at despair. And he is extraordinary. Um, James was ultimately one of the leaders of the Harlem Renaissance, a novelist. A, a very distinguished poet um, and an educator. So he sounds like one of these like swashbuckling Harry Paysian kind of di- guys. Like an I can make anything possible kind of Renaissance man of his time. Absolutely. And really, um, you know, the context in the post-Reconstruction, I mean, well, really, I should say, in the post-slavery context, there was this enthusiasm amongst Black Americans, particularly those who were who had access to education, to like to build a place in history, to record all that they had achieved because, you know, Black people were people who were seen as not having history, not having any culture of any worth. So he was among that vanguard that were, were saying things like, we have to record our music, we have to record our sermons, we have to write down everything. So it's 1900. Jacksonville, Florida. James Weldon Johnson is the principal of a school a school for Black children that was set up after the Civil War. And in January of that year, a couple of students come up to him and ask him if he would help them out. These kids wanted to celebrate Lincoln's birthday, which was the following month, February of 1900. And they asked him if he would write an address for the celebration. So he he sits down to compose this poem, and something happens in the process. And he doesn't fully elaborate this when he remembers it, But he decides not to honor Lincoln. If you could get into his head, what do you think he was thinking at the time? Okay, so James is is kind of an irreverent person. I'm sure he was one of the people who was like, I mean, Lincoln didn't even like Black people. 
right? I mean, (laughs) right? I mean, I think you know, and I'm sure he thought, you know, he's a racist, and I want to do well. And it's true. I mean, you have to think about James Elton Johnson is comparable to someone like W. E. B. Du Bois. Yeah, he's he's like a hardcore intellect, and so you know, I think he's like I'm gonna say. Who really, the people who really are the heroes in this story. The Civil War Mm. wouldn't have been won without Black soldiers, right? This is not Lincoln freed the slaves. It's not, that's not the story. No. (laughs) I'm thinking he's like, I'm going to tell the real story. So he, you know, starts to compose. Lift every voice and sing. This poem. Until earth and heaven ring. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. Stony the road we trod. Bitter the chastening rod. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears. It's a poem about the past, the present, and the future. No mention of Lincoln. No. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. The first singing of the song is 500 school children. When there was an event at a school, everyone would come. Family, friends. So the whole community comes out. Yeah, oh yeah. So they set it to music and the 500 school children sang it. And Amani says it might have gone nowhere, you know, been just a nice recital. But then a couple months later, something happens that scatters the song far and wide. That's after the break. Science Reporting on Radio Lab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This is Nan DeRosa from Amsterdam. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. This is The Vanishing of Harry Pace, a miniseries on Radiolab. Where we last left off... James Weldon Johnson writes this song in 1900. 500 kids sing it. Must have been quite a moment. But after the recital, people generally go on about their lives. But then something happens in Jacksonville that scatters the song far and wide. And just for context, at this point in history... Jacksonville was... It was not as violent as other parts of the Deep South because it was a resort community at the time. People went there to have a nice time and didn't want to experience lynchings and violence and the like. It was a little bit of this protective bubble where the harshness of the rest of the South didn't really apply. But then in 1901, there's this great fire in Jacksonville that burns a lot of the city. There is a fire that begins at a mattress factory in La Villa, Black neighborhood in Jacksonville. Like, it's a beautiful neighborhood. It's a relatively prosperous neighborhood. Should I read a portion about James, James, what James says about the fire? She read us from James Weldon Johnson's memoir. We met many people fleeing, James recounted, 
the fire is traveling directly east over the district where the bulk of Negroes in the western end of the city live. The firemen spend all their efforts saving a low row of frame houses belonging to a white man named Steve Melton. But the fire chief allowed Black-owned homes to burn. Essentially, the fire department let seven miles of Black Jacksonville burn. After a mere eight hours, 10,000 people were homeless and 2,368 buildings were gone. Wow. 10,000 people lost their homes because they were just trying to save one white guy's property? Yeah. That's insane. James reflected on Jacksonville um, and his youth in somewhat romantic terms. He thought of it as a sort of wonderful refuge and is a sort of, I think, rude awakening, right? There's no protection. Here's this ever-present, immediate possibility that one literally cannot protect oneself against. After the fire, James Weldon Johnson and his brother Rosamond, they, they leave home. Heartbroken. Go to New York. They start these sort of new lives. And they're not the only ones. So many of the kids that were at that recital, they and their families, they leave too. People are moving out of Jacksonville. So there is this organic spread of the song. Like seeds in the wind. So now you have all of these kids in all of these new cities singing the song within their homes, and the mothers pick up on it. Almost immediately, all across the South, Black women who are in women's civic organizations begin to share the song through their organizations. The women's groups and churches, they're pasting, lift every voice and sing in the back of hymnals, letters to editors, um, essay, you know, articles in newspapers. They're the ones who say this is an anthem. The first call for it to be the Black National Anthem was 1901, just a few months after that fire. Fast forward to 1919, the NAACP gets involved, and just a few years after that... Harry Pace presses it onto a record. That's also meaningful because the United States doesn't have a national anthem at that point, not until, like, 1931. Oh, wow, so this is, like, almost 10 years before the U.S. makes it the the Star Spangled Banner, the official song. Oh, yeah. From that point on... The Black National Anthem. The song went into overdrive. You heard it at civil rights marches. Martin Luther King referenced it before the Selma March, after the Montgomery bus boycott. James Brown... He hacked it into his singing of the national anthem at a Muhammad Ali fight. And the home of the brave. It keeps coming up again. The resilience of Lift Every Voice and Sing is truly unparalleled. Like, there are moments when people have said, well, here's another anthem of Black America. We shall overcome. One nation under a groove, or... Young, Gifted, and Black. Nina Simone was like, choose my song instead, you know, which as much as I love that song, no. Lift Every Voice and Sing is, it's the song that was there before the heyday of the Civil Rights Movement and there to turn to after it was done. Why that is didn't fully click for us until we met up with this guy. 
Name Emmett G. Price III, professor of worship, church, and culture, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. In addition to being a scholar who knows all about Harry Pace and Black Swan, he's also writing a book about Lift Every Voice. You do deliver sermons here. And he took us to church, his church, in Boston. And we sat around uh, the piano and he explained to us while playing that one of the reasons the song has attached itself to so many different generations, very different generations, is that there's something essential baked into the song's structure and its lyrics. I mean, you know, the first verse is a articulation of aspiration. Lift every voice and sing. Let's remember that lynching was about muting the voice. Till earth and heaven ring. Right, this notion that this thing is much bigger than us. Ring with the harmonies of liberty. It's supposed to be we the people. Let our rejoicing rise. Don't sing down. High as the listening skies. Lift the songs up. Let it resound loud as the rolling seas. The seas of the mighty Atlantic Ocean that brought all of us here through the Middle Passage. So the first chunk of the song captures a spirit of optimism. It's in a major key. It's about hope rising up. But then... Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Things shift. It becomes minor. Kind of a march almost. And then you go to verse two, stanza two. The second verse is a reminder, internal reminder, of where we've come from. Stony the road we trod. Stony roads with bare feet, right, are brutal. Bitter the chastening rod. That rod where people were getting beat with, right? The bitter of the sting. Felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Hope unborn had died. It died a premature death before it even was possible to come be birthed. So in the first two verses of the song, you have a kind of juxtaposition between hope and horror. Almost this balanced tension in a way. Hope, horror, hope horror, in a tug of war. And then... Now we pray. You get to the resolution. I mean, the third verse is a prayer. God of our weary years. God of our weary years. God of our silent tears. Thou who has brought us thus far on the way. Thou who hast by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet... I mean, I think the song, it carries you through the range of emotions, right? The ascent, the hope, the achievement, and then the plotting, the struggle, the depth. She says that arc, from having hope to having it crushed to somehow finding a way forward. The arc is sort of the arc of Black life, period, (laughs) you know. Every generation sort of experiences that arc in one way or another, and every individual. So getting back to the living room, she suspects that as they were all there singing together, everybody in her family was having their own personal flashback. You know, my mother talks about going to the bakery and buying day-old bread, bread, right? She was born in the 40s. And you had to walk through a white neighborhood to do so. And the second they entered the neighborhood, 
the residents would sick their dogs on them. So they had to run all. So, so even so, the, so they're running through white neighborhoods being chased by dogs. Wow. What about you? What was going through your mind at that moment? I mean, it was a montage of imagery. I, I have such distinct memories of being a little girl in Alabama in the 70s and everyone having large afros, wearing dashikis, that kind of bold assertion of Black is beautiful and Black pride. But when we moved on the block um, where we live, we were the third Black family to move on that block. And of course, soon thereafter, there was white flight and the whole block was, was Black except for one older white man on the block. And he would put up a sign <laughs> Uh, that said zoned for whites because it had originally been zoned for whites. (laughs) So the boys from the neighborhood would walk by, kick down the sign on the way to school, and he would put it back up. But there was this choreography. And at the same time, the man who will be the first black mayor, Richard Arrington, was my parents' boss at Miles College. The political establishment is shifting, but there's still these horrific episodes of police violence. There's a prison organizing movement happening, mass incarceration. So... In that moment, the kind of fuzzy images of my world of the 70s in Alabama kind of melded with with a power fist. She says all that was going through her mind as she was looking at her son singing the song. But when we asked her, what do you think he was thinking? Okay, so this is a great question because as you all know now, he doesn't remember that moment. And I, for me, it's an unforgettable moment. (laughs) I just... I'm kind of undone because <laughs> it wasn't something that he like held on to forever. Here's where we get to an open question. Will the song attach itself to Imani's son's generation the same way it did for her and her mothers and her grandmothers and her great-grandmothers? I, I gave a talk years ago at Stanford and to an African-American studies class, which was largely Black students, and none of them knew the song. Why do you suppose that is? We don't, um, as Americans generally, like we don't belong to a lot of organizations anymore. We don't have this sort of highly networked daily life. And so you can't find it, right? For lots of 20-year-olds, young people, they don't sing it all the time, right? And then there are parts of the country where it never really like had the same hold anyway. But I I do know this, for both of my sons, you know, coming of age in this era is has been complicated. You know, their first sort of memory of, of a president was Obama. Yes, we can, the justice and equality. And the sense of triumph of that moment. And then they also lived with the constant repetition of video footage of black people being killed by police officers. Mama, I love you. And because we're in the digital era that it has played over and over again, and so often there's no warning, so they have seen many black people killed. So they have an acute sense of injustice and fear. And also this sort of the possibilities are unlimited. Insistence that they should feel as though the world is open to them, but they know how profoundly unfair it is. And then the Trump era. She worries that young people today are being bombarded by messages of extreme hope 
and extreme despair. And they're left stranded in between. Without a kind of anchor. In a sense, this is a harder world. I mean, it's a part of, you know, James Weldon Johnson's genius of his composing the song, but like, if we ever needed something like that, it's now. Monty Perry's book on Lift Every Voice and Sing is called May We Forever Stand. And we should say, the song is maybe making a comeback? Maybe? Beyonce did a cover a few years ago. Uh, It's getting hacked into the national anthem again. And it's now being sung at the start of NFL games, which people have mixed feelings about. Understandably. And of course, just last week, Vanessa Williams sang it at the White House. So who knows? Maybe it's back for another round. What we do know is that 98 years ago, as Black Swan Records was imploding, Harry Pace seared the song onto a record for the first time, froze it in place. And that record is now at the National Recording Registry. So thank you, Harry. The Vanishing of Harry Pace was written, produced, and edited by me and Shima Oliai, the Awesome Audio team. The series is presented as a collaboration between Awesome Audio, that's osmaudio.com, Radiolab, and Radio Diaries. The series is based on the book Black Swan Blues, The Hard Rise and Brutal Fall of America's First Black-Owned Record Label by Paul Slade. Our editorial advisors are Casey Lehman, Imani Perry, Cord Jefferson, and Terrence McKnight. Jamie Floyd is our consulting producer. Our fact-checker is Natalie Mead. Series artwork was created by Katya Herrera. A very special thanks to the Francis family, Valerie, Bade, Zoe, and... I'm Miles, and I play Freeman Player. Perry. Perry. And Miles. Thanks also to Mac Primo and Little Wing Lee. Celia Muller, Sahar Baharlu, Theodora Kuzlin, Andrea Latimer, Michelle Zhu, Mike Berry, Maya Passini Schnau, Rachel Lieberman, and Kim Nowaki. And we had music in this episode from the Liberty Middle School. Okay, Jad and Shima signing off. We salute you all. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Susie Lechtenberg is our executive producer. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Kusick, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyana Sambandam, Matt Kielty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. With help from Sarah Sandbach, Karine Leong, and Candace Wong. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly and Emily Krieger. Just...